Welcome, everybody, to the Metro Music Makers podcast. This is Allison Gerald, and today I'm here with Dr. Victor Esquera and licensed professional music therapist Sarah Longwell. They are both staff members here at Metro Music Makers, and we are talking about mental health. Um, Victor recently wrote a blog for us about his experience with mental health, and it's such an insightful article that Victor, I want to start with that. Um, and thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, and I was, you know, as I read it, I was, I really connected with the article. It resonated with me on a personal level. Um, so I just, I, can we take our listeners kind of through the journey? Sure. (laughs) Buckle up. So, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. And yeah, like, I'm glad that you connected with it. Uh, My hopes when I wrote that was that someone would read it and be like, oh, I've been through that sort of thing before, or I can relate to those experiences. And I don't know, gain some sort of insight or hope from it. Um, So yeah, as far as like mental illness, it's something that I have been diagnosed with. And it's I, I, I wasn't diagnosed with it for until like my later adult life but it's something that i knew was present and it did play a lot with the way that i experienced music and the role that like music played in my life so one of the main ways was i had this notion of like being a tortured soul or like you know kind of like a mad scientist like (laughs) Mm -hmm. struggling artist like that whole romanticized trope um i really believed in and a lot of the artists that i looked up to were that person like i've looked up to so many artists who've had like addiction issues who've had depression issues who died early i mean i'm i'm sure anybody can like just with me saying that prompt name four or five off the top of their head so i could really relate to that um because i was struggling on the inside Um, And that just made me connect emotionally with what some of those artists were going through in their real lives. And like with some of like, I really like Chopin as a composer and like Mm -hmm. that whole sort of like romantic era of music. I was like, oh, I'm being swept away by this powerful force. So really like all this seemed to kind of like distract me from my own reality. Um, And it helped me like not really focus on my my own problem so on the one Victor, hand what how what what age were you like I want to because that's where I resonated with that because mm-hmm. I feel like I was this, I was in my teen early 20 years when I also was With. connecting with and romanticizing about these tortured artists oh yeah De- uh, like early teens and yeah. I would say like from a lot of the P, you know, because I, I go to support groups and I'm friends with a lot of people uh, with mental illness, and like that seems to be a common thread, uh, mm-hmm. is just like right around like early teens, like when you're figuring out who you are as a human being, mm-hmm. that's when it entered my mind as like, okay, well, who am I? And mm-hmm. that was when like 
I had, you know, certain feelings and certain confusions about who I really was and all that sort of stuff. And as I like started to develop that, um, those kind of like, I guess, symptoms of like mental illness became more and more apparent, but I didn't Mm -hmm. make that connection until later. It's just now reflecting back. I'm like, oh yeah, like that, that makes sense. Right. Um, Yeah. I, at that, you know, same age, I was also listening to a lot of romantic music and, um, artists that were expressing deep emotions in their lyrics. And I was writing a lot of poetry. And I remember my mom like finding my poetry folder and being like, oh my God, like, are you okay? You know, like, wow, uh, this is really good writing. But (laughs) Um, so Sarah, my question to you, because you've worked with the teenage population and mental health setting is like, how much of this is teenage angst and how much of it really is, um, you know, some mental health challenges going on? You know, I think that the line really comes in with functioning, right? Like the way that maybe we can differentiate between just normal teen angst as we, you know, moodiness versus an actual mental health issue that's clinical is, you know, looking at how that teenager is functioning. Are they able to get schoolwork done? Do they have friendships? Are they eating okay? Are they sleeping okay? Um, you know, we we kind of get used to the idea of teenagers being really overdramatic and really moody. And yeah, some of that just comes with the territory. Um, but I definitely think that we can, there is a difference. We can tell the difference between normal teen angst and a mental health issue when we look at, you know, is there obsessive thinking about death, thoughts of suicide? You know, there are signs of clinical mental health issues that we can kind of say, okay, that's not normal teen angst. Um, And, you know, the thing that is so hard, I think, for an adult who is, you know, the parent of a teenager or, you know, just a friend of a family that has a teenager is we have this benefit, right, of like hindsight, like we're adults, we grew out of our teen angst, and we can look at these things that seem like the end of the world to a teenager. And we can say, well, that'll be fine. You know, you'll be okay, that's gonna go away. That's not forever. And the problem is that even though that's true, it is, it is real for them, that emotion is real for them. And so sometimes we kind of dismiss it out of hand, because we're like, well, I know that you'll get past that. And it's true. But that's like, I always say, it's like looking at some, somebody says to you, oh my God, I broke my leg. It's killing me. I'm in horrible pain. And you go, oh, well, it'll heal. <laughs> right? Well, yeah. that's true, but that doesn't mean that they're not in pain in that moment. Yeah. And like what, what you mentioned there, Sarah, like <laughs> brings back a lot of memories of um, people being like, oh, well, what's wrong? Like, it's okay. Why don't you just try like going on a walk or like, just be happy. You're not blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I don't think you understand exactly what's going on in my brain right now, because it's not, it's not that, it's not just that easy. So like, I mean, any mental illness, like you could take something like alcoholism. That's like telling an alcoholic, oh, well just don't drink. Or like, again, you know, someone who's addicted to gambling, just don't gamble. Like it's not that easy. Um, So for me, when people said that, it always kind of well, for one, it, it would kind of piss me off because I was like, yeah, you didn't think I, I thought about that? You don't think I want to be happy? Um, 
but two, it would show me that like a lot of people just don't understand it that well. And like, so another reason that I wrote the blog was because like, because of coronavirus and all this stuff. And, and just like recently, there's been so much great advocacy being done for mental illness. Mm-hmm. And someone like, just to give an example, like Simone Biles on like the biggest stage of sports, like during the biggest time, like the most important thing, she's like, um, I'm going to take care of myself. And like, she got some backlash from a lot of people like, oh, you, you know, you should be representing our country. It's like, no, she's taking care of herself. Give that woman a break. You know? Yeah, and I, that took I, a lot of courage yeah. on her part. But but to to that, um, you know, for most teenagers, I would I would think, well, in my case, I can speak for myself, I didn't have the emotional intelligence to be able to tell people what was going on inside. So you've got that coupled with friends and family who don't really know what's going on and so Sarah again like what what are some things you know how can how can we help those who you know are younger and maybe going through stuff but you know what are some clues and what what are some ways to approach that with them yeah so um some of the things I mentioned earlier come into play here right where if, even if they are not really able to articulate what they're feeling or express it clearly in words, looking at those behavioral things, you know, are they hanging out with their friends less? Are their grades suffering? Are they eating more or eating less or sleeping more or sleeping less? Because um, those are the ways that that stuff will come out when we don't have the right language for it. So paying attention to those behavioral changes, you know, or just even, you know, noticing when you're when your child is not talking as much or, you know, things like that. Um, As far as getting them to open up more, uh, I think it starts with small things. Um, You know, I I love the saying, right, that if you don't listen to your child when they're telling you the small things, they won't tell you the big things, right? Mm -hmm. So building that trust um, with small things, you know, taking the things that in our adult minds are so like frivolous you know, really listening because then when the thing, something is big, they're going to be more likely to come to us with it. They're going to be more likely to, you know, have that trust built with us already that, okay, I can talk to mom. She will listen, you know, even if it's something I thought might be kind of dumb or weird, she listened. So maybe this time I can come to her too. Um, and another thing we can do is just model honesty and model emotional expression, you know, just to say, I think we, sometimes feel like with teenagers and with kids like that we have to always seem okay and um maybe that's like an attempt to seem stable to give them a place of stability but sometimes we do them a disservice when we don't show them that it is normal and okay to not feel okay um and that that's something you're dealing with too because then they're going to feel much more safe to say oh me too you know, I'm having a tough day. You know, mom, you know, you were having a hard day the other day. I'm having a hard day today. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, you were showing them that it's okay that you can, you can talk about it and that you can get through it. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. As a parent, it can be a challenge to be vulnerable with your child about your own feelings and emotions when you're, you feel like you're trying to hold it together for everybody. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's a really good point. So Victor, I'm curious in your situation, who did you feel like, or did you feel like you had someone like that in your life? Um, yeah, Kurt Cobain. So like this, what, what Sarah was just talking about, like looking for an opportunity to communicate your feelings. And like, I don't know, like me as a early teenager, I didn't want to talk to my parents about that. Um, it's weird. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most teenagers probably don't. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But I'm just, I'm going out on a limb, like I said. But for me, that was something that I could connect with. Mm-hmm. Like music and the arts. Like Allison, you were saying, like, I could write poetry. Um, and like, even that, I would be more comfortable than sharing some poetry with my parents or like sharing, hey, I like this song. Then I would be like, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I got, I got some stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just way more awkward for me. So like, music, like bringing it back to like how music ties into my mental health is like music kind of bridges that gap between me reaching out direct. It, it gave me a middle ground for me to express myself. It, it, it gives me a middle ground for me to like, okay, I can, I can write this out. I can sing this. I can paint this. And that helps, that helps me get those emotions out. And it also like is an opportunity for somebody else to, you know, question what's going on. Oh, I noticed you're listening to this song. I noticed that like your poetry says this. Um, Could you tell me more about that? You know, so that, that was something that I was comfortable with. And like playing guitar was, was an outlet for me. Um, My parents were very... Uh, they didn't really care what I listened to, <laughs> so like they they were never, um, they were never really like criticizing my taste in music or anything. But I'm sure that gave them some sort of insight into the type of person that I was and what I was going through. Um, I probably should have asked them that, or should ask them that. <laughs> um, but I know like I have enough. I know if I see somebody listening, like if someone I loved was listening to Elliot Smith all day, every day, I'd be like, are you okay? (laughs) Um, I've been that person, but I love Elliot Smith. Me too. (laughs) I had a friend in college that used to say that she would know what kind of mood I was in just by walking past the door of my dorm room and like hearing what music was coming out of there. And she could tell, yeah. right? Like, oh, okay, Sarah's interesting. Today. Oh, she's happy. She's doing good. She's sad. <laughs> it's very telling, and like, I can I can go back and like kind of determine the state of my mental health by reading like my old poetry or list or like looking at my old lyrics or songs, and I'll be like, oh man, that was that was a rough time. I I, <laughs> I, I remember dealing with that. I have like a year's worth of some horrible horrible haikus that I was like obsessed with (laughs) writing haikus and I still write haikus but like these were bad and like dark but like in a bad way like Mm -hmm. I was I was very much an adult and these were like middle school level ranting have you guys seen this meme going around when we're recording this it's close to halloween and there's this meme i keep seeing that's like the scariest thing i can imagine is a haunted house but the ghost just recites your 16 year old poetry (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect i love that that's perfect um 
So, Victor, I love in the article you just wrote how you describe music and the uh, effect music had in each stage of your journey um, through through this mental health journey. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and you just described like the initial stage, I think, was relating Uh, to Kurt Cobain. So can you tell us a little bit about what came after that? So as I got older, as like my disease kind of like progressed, I would use music almost as like a justification to kind of, I guess, explain to myself why I was acting and thinking the way I was. And with like with that, I would be like, oh, yeah, well, this person did this, you know, well, uh, like I, I gave the example of Basquiat, who's a painter. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, Basquiat lived this way. He was like a homeless heroin addict guy. So, like, of course, me being like a bum and like living under a bridge is a totally feasible option because like, you know, I make music and that's the lifestyle that I lead. So music was became such a powerful force in my life that um not only did i start to like neglect other things that i was important and and not just because of music i'm not saying like music brought me like i was addicted to music that's that's not the point my point is that like music and the arts gave me a very um clear excuse of why i could sacrifice very clear or why I could like just completely ignore very clear signs of like mental illness. And Mm -hmm. so with that, like I would be like, I don't know, very depressed or like I I would not be able to get out of bed or something like that. I'd be like, well, this, this is normal. This is just because like the muses are inside me or something like that. You know, I, I could just, it was just like, Oh, this is, this is probably what Chopin felt, you know? And I'm this, this is going to help me, be an artist so that whole tortured artist thing where it started off like in my childhood is like something I could relate to um once I was like an early adult it was like something that I like had something I I was becoming and something that I would not 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 only I was becoming but something that I was willing to become Mm -hmm. like I was sorry go ahead I was gonna say to people on the outside that might have seemed delusional um, I don't know, Sarah, what I'm just curious about your thoughts on that, because you use music to help people. Um, but in this case, you know, it's just a little different from what I've heard ever heard before. Although, actually, I think this idea of the tortured artist is so pervasive that I think it can actually cover up mental illness, because I think... Um, you know, others outside might perceive it as like, oh yeah, you know, he's creative. He's, he's just creative. Mm. He's eccentric. He's moody, right? As if this is like part of the deal or needs to be part of the deal, you know? And it, it sounds like Victor that like you kind of had internalized that narrative of like, oh, I need this. This is my madness, right? Like that very like romantic Chopin-y kind of way of looking at things of like, my madness is also my muse, like idea. And I think sometimes people on the outside will are willing to see someone that way too. Like if you're playing that role of the artist, he's a musician who, you know, 
is a little bit like of a mad genius, people are kind of willing to go along with that. Oh, artists are just, how many times have you heard that, right? Oh, artists just think differently. You just live differently. <laughs> like every, every day. <laughs> yeah, like every day. And, you know, I don't know if you guys remember Netflix. There was a Netflix special that came out a few years ago. Um, the Australian comedian, um, Hannah Gadsdy, it was called Nanette. And she gave this really beautiful um, perspective. She's talking about Van Gogh. You know, and that Van Gogh, nobody, you know, he thought he had to be terribly depressed to create art. Um, But he eventually met a psychologist that helped treat him and he got much better and was able to create more art. But she, you know, she talks about this horrible damage that this myth does of the tortured artist. And, you know, really that she had to unlearn that herself, that she didn't need to be ill to write that when she's healthy, she writes more, she writes better. There's nothing, it's this damaging idea that continues to persist that like, oh, being a little bit, you know, depressed and moody and anxious and mentally ill is like fueling your art in some way. And that that's not necessarily, that's not really the case. That's so true. I've actually been um, thinking about that a lot with my own songwriting lately because I've been doing a lot of inner work um, to kind of pull myself out of a, a low place that I've experienced recently. But as I um, think about getting back into songwriting, I, I sort of became detached from it in this process. And I'm kind of like, oh my God, what am I going to write about? Like, who's going to listen to happy lyrics? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> how am I going to dig deep and get in touch with that if I'm trying to elevate? myself which is a very similar idea so yeah and like so i want to plug really quick that book that i mentioned in the blog the insanity hoax like that was a really really good resource for me kind of rejecting that whole like mad scientist depressed artist claim Um, And the author really does a great job kind of like going historically and bringing specific examples of like, yeah, Van Gogh, you know, yes, he had mental illness, but like that wasn't why he was a good artist. Like there's no connection between like people having mental illness and that somehow like that's not a causal effect (laughs) to, to, to creating good art. And like, just like I mentioned earlier, like, some of the worst art that I've ever made was like those haikus. Um, but like that was that was when like my depression was at like one of its strongest points. And I think uh, there's a difference between me using my music as an outlet to kind of like, okay, let me just express myself and me living my life as that feeling. So it's, it's, it's a difference of like me sharing that feeling or me internalizing and living that feeling. Um, and that's where things can become dangerous for me when like my brain starts spiraling and uh, like I become all those negative thoughts and like all, you know, all the tortured ideas that'll cross my mind. It seems similar to you. You hear stories about actors who who become their character at all Mm. times, even offset. And you just wonder what kind of, you know, effect that has on them mentally, if they're really becoming that character. 
during during the filming period um so what you just said sounds like a very similar like you know if you're really getting into the art are you are you living that art are you breathing that art you know it's just I don't know that's something to think about for sure it's yeah, yeah. something that came up in your article that I thought was so insightful and I think doesn't get talked about a lot because I think so many people can relate so immediately to this idea of music or art as therapy. Um, but, you know, you touched on the way that music can become almost toxic if you use it to keep yourself in that state. Um, I, and it reminded me of a you know, an experience I had working in a mental hospital where there was a young woman there and my, um, my, um, supervisor at the time, my music therapy supervisor, I can remember talking to her, um, and telling her, you know, you're using music to keep yourself sick. Hmm. Wow. And, and it was, it was very true for her. You know, she deliberately constantly chose to listen to things that kept her in her anger. And, you know, it wasn't, it's so tricky, I think, to find that space between what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, you're a teenager, you're going through things that you don't know how to put a name to. So when you find art that expresses it, it's like, oh, my God, thank God I'm not making this up. Like, I'm not the only person that feels this. Here are the words that I couldn't find for myself. And like, where's the line, though, between that and then going too far where it's keeping you stuck? It's mm-hmm. keeping you from healing or keeping you from you know, escaping those emotions. But then how does someone, um, how does someone go from listening to that music to something that's going to help elevate their mood or, um, their, their mindset? Do they need to just detach altogether for a while? Or is there a way that they can transition? So, I mean, I'll speak to my own experience with this. Um, yes, I had, uh, I had like certain emotions and certain behaviors and things like that that I needed to share. Um, that it, that were kind of like manifestations of uh, like my depression, my mental illness. Um, and one of the best ways I've heard this described is like those are clouds in the sky, and it took me a while to recognize that. I'm not the clouds, like I'm the sky that this, you know, like, yes, I have these thoughts, but you know, who's, who's, who's the listener there? Like they're there. Everyone has an internal monologue of some sort. And my internal monologue oftentimes will be negative things that were sparked by depression. Um, but that's not me. I'm the, you know, myself or the I or whatever you want to call it. There's tricky, tricky word stuff here, but there's someone listening to that also. So um, I just have to recognize that a lot of times those feelings are going to pass. I can express those through music. And that is a very, very powerful tool. Um, but the music is not who I am. The lifestyle. I mean, the music doesn't encapsulate everything that I am. Like my artwork, my poetry, whatever it is, that doesn't, that's not like the core of me. That's what, that's, you know, my way of expressing myself. But for me, healthy, a healthy way of doing that is being able to, I don't want to say keep a distance, um, but keep, uh, I don't know, just be mindful of 
the I don't the transitory nature of those things. If that does that does that make sense? Yeah, Victor, I think you just helped me kind of crystallize the difference, which is there's a difference between expressing what you're feeling and identifying with it. Mm. You know, realizing that like, yes, I'm having this feeling. Let me feel it, right? Don't bury it. Feel it. Feel what is coming up for you and, you know, not having kind of a phobia of your emotions, but then not taking it to the other extreme of like, oh, I am that, right? I am an artist and I am my suffering and I am this depression and I am my anger or sadness or pain. There's a diff that's the difference is, you know, I'm feeling this versus I am this. Yes. So Victor, as you went through that process, what, um, were there noticeable changes in the music you were making? Yes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it. And like some of my old bandmates, mentioned stuff like that there because like so there was one moment in my life when i went through a very difficult breakup and a lot of songs uh not uh, a lot of songs the, the breakup album yes exactly <laughs> every artist has one of those and that's like, always the one that like hits the top of the charts right <laughs> i don't know so at the time i was in like a hip-hop rock band so oh dear like, okay that, well you know like that style of music i would like <laughs> i would like come i would like come to and i was the only songwriter in this group so i'm the only one writing music they're like depending on me for the music and i'm like well i got a new song guys and it's just like <laughs> the most unhip hoppable stuff that you could possibly do because you know you need like lively dance stuff and i'm i'm <laughs> i'm coming up with some dark dark things with all in minor scales some of them are in <laughs> some of them are in like six eight time the, the you know the lyricist rappers look at me like i don't, I don't know what to do with this i'm like well <laughs> and like it helped me at times but like sarah said when i started to really like internalize that and like when that was my waking life um that was dangerous for me because like you know, yes, I was sad and I was going through a breakup, but like I did other things too, you know, like I was, I was a human being, but my issue was I let that get to me so much that that's who I was. I was just a, a broken hearted person, a broken person. No, I, I think one Which of the lyrics everyone like, can relate to whether yeah. they have mental illness or not, like everyone experiences heartbreak you know and yeah. that's an interesting thing too when it comes to, especially when you're younger and sometimes your identity can get wrapped up in a relationship of like i am this so then if the relationship ends you're like oh my god who am i <laughs> right mm -hmm. if you you know i think that we're more prone to that when we're younger identifying with a relationship so then when we lose it there's this grief of like oh what's my identity now and well, so then i think i think I think people all ages, you know, can say, experience that. I was I was in my thirties, <laughs> so like I didn't have that excuse. But yeah, like it, um, like music did play a very large part in like helping me get over that. And like now, in retrospect, I can look back and be like, well, I well I can almost I I can pick out which which songs or which artworks were just an expression of my feelings and which ones 
were just me blatantly like getting wrapped my identity wrapped up um in kind of like who i thought i was so i guess what the point i'm trying to make here is like a question of like authenticity um yes music was most useful for me when i was making an authentic connection um music was kind of like detrimental to me when i was just doing that for its own sake and to like feed my i don't know feed my negative emotions or you know kind of like feed my addiction to my disease type thing mm-hmm. wow so um victor you actually entered a treatment program i did yeah and yeah. Was that a decision you made on your own? Um, I will. I mean, yeah, I, 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 well, I didn't make it on my own. I had support from like family and friends. Um, and it was their idea, but like I made the decision. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is probably a good idea. <laughs> like, uh, so yeah, I was, I was willing enough to do that. And, I would just urge everyone to keep an open mind about it. Cause I'm the only person in my family, uh, that has like mental illness issues. So I wouldn't like my parents definitely had a stigma. They weren't as fierce as, you know, they were open-minded, but their mm-hmm. stigma was more like cultural where they had certain ideas of what mental illness looked like, what a, you know, a mental patient looked like, you know, they were picturing someone who was like, wrapped up like uh straight jacket straight jacket yeah, yeah. or like you know a, a hobo or yeah like someone like someone on the fringes of society mm-hmm. when that's not really what it is you know i was in there with like doc you know i was a professor at the time there's doctors there's lawyers there's nurses and you know there's so many people that struggle with mental illness and so they had this idea of um somebody who couldn't who was completely Unman like mismanaging their life when on the outside like i was fine you know like i had a job i had a home i was i I had friends and things like that but um like i mentioned earlier like my insides were not pretty Uh Uh, so i knew that i had to get some sort of help and i'm i'm very very grateful for it and i cannot um emphasize enough how important reaching out for help is, whether that's to a friend, whether that's to a treatment center, a psychiatrist, a therapist, like all those things have changed my life immensely for the better. Um, So that's why I'm a big proponent of like mental health advocacy. What point were you at that a treatment center became an option for you? Um. I would say when the pain of changing was less than the pain of continuing to go on the way that things were going on. I was I was willing to try literally anything uh, to not feel the way that I did. Um, there's a phrase I've heard that's uh, spiritually bankrupt. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the point that I was at, like my spirit, my soul, whatever you want to call it. Like I felt like truly, truly empty inside. 
and uh, like I didn't have a reason to live or that I shouldn't be alive or um, a lot of you know a lot of negative thoughts uh, so there was a big danger in that and um, you know some people brought it brought it up and I'm like okay I'll I'll try I'll do anything at this point to not feel the way I do so um, you did have some some folks kind of bring it into your periphery yeah, yeah yeah and it it had crossed my mind um mm-hmm. but one of the things that my brain tells me is like oh it's it's not it's just you know it's not affecting anybody else it's just you um mm-hmm. and that's that's a lie that i was telling myself because yes of course i affect other people like my family doesn't want to see me struggling on um, you know like me isolating and you know like me dropping off the face of the earth is going to affect other people and that was me being uh, you know i wouldn't say purposefully selfish but i don't know just kind of naively thinking that my life was was not relevant to anybody else when in fact like it was affecting other people people did what they were worried about me right and so yeah it was it was spurred by other people for sure Sarah Victor's, you know, talked about this from the perspective of being the person with the illness. What advice can we give uh, friends, family, loved ones of people in this position um, who want to approach that person about treatment options? Yeah, um, something, Victor, that I think is really interesting about your story is that um, you had considered it, but it became real and possible when other people spoke it out loud. I think that's a really powerful statement about how much it can matter to reach in to somebody that's struggling. And if you notice someone in your life that you think is not well, um, I think the one of the best ways to approach that conversation is without judgment, just sharing your observations. Hey, here's what I'm seeing. You know, I, we miss you at our parties. We, you haven't been around. Um, hey, you know, the other day you said so and such a thing and it, it kind of worried me. Are you doing okay? Um, you know, just sharing what you're noticing because that's going to take any judgment out of it. You're taking, you're not saying, I think, let me diagnose you, or I'm telling you that you're not healthy and someone needs to fix you. You know, it takes the judgment out. You're just approaching the topic with curiosity. Just saying, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm noticing. This is what I'm hearing you say. What's going on? You know, and just allowing them to share their, their interpretation of what, like, what is that? You know, um, I think it creates a sense of safety. But what it also does is lets the person know, not that you're coming to them with judgment, but just you are paying attention to them. I think that's really powerful too. You know, Victor talked about that lie that depression tells you that you aren't relevant and that no one sees you and that what's going on is only going on inside you and you're just invisible. And I think even approaching someone and saying, hey, I see you. I see that you're not the way that you normally are. I see that something has changed can really help show them someone does care about me, right? You're giving evidence that contradicts that lie that depression is telling you that no one sees you or that what's happening doesn't matter. That's so true. I actually had an incident 
this summer where I was in a meeting and a friend of mine who was in the same meeting afterwards came up and she was like, Allison, what is going on? I can see all over your face that you don't want to be here. And I was just, I was having a really bad day. And that gave me the opportunity to just tell somebody, I'm having a really bad day. And to kind of get that weight off my shoulder. So I think it's important for people to know that someone may just be waiting and not even necessarily realize it, but they might be waiting for someone just to say, hey, how's it going? Like, I noticed this about you know, the expression on your face. I mean, it was that simple for her to say, you just don't look like you want to be here. Are you okay? That's a great point. Thanks for sharing that. Victor, what are some, sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, Sarah, like that's ultimately how people approached me was just like, hey, are you you okay? Like they weren't like, hey, you need treatment (laughs) because I definitely would have been combative. I would have been like, Oh yeah, I need treatment. Peace. Like I'm never talking to you again. So like people are like, yeah, I noticed this or like you mentioned this. Um, and I would retort with something they were like, well, you know, maybe have you considered doing this? Like it was, it was very always non, uh, confrontational type stuff because I would not have been open to that. Um, and like, so like after treatment, like I definitely would be remiss if I didn't mention like the good part of all this stuff, which is like the recovery. (laughs) So like, yeah, all, all that, um, like, so this this is already like several years back now that I like went to treatment and from that moment, like, so in the, in the blog, I posted a picture and I mentioned in the blog, like, this is a total HIPAA violation of like, someone took pictures (laughs) of like, (laughs) we, we would do concerts inside this treatment center on Sundays. And like, I was kind of like leading a band and like, I can clearly remember how music took on a different element for me, just like, you know, a few days in, cause I'd find other people were like, Oh, you play music, you make music. And it was back to, um, just like sharing our actual emotions, sharing our experiences. Like we would like the picture is from, <laughs> we took that Rolling Stones song happy and like changed a bunch of the lyrics and like, it was fun. It was authentic. It was genuine. And like, I was getting back in touch with music the way that I originally learned to love music, like that expression, like kind of where we started, like that first question you asked me, Allison, or the second question of like, uh, how did, how did music, um, kind of relate to my mental, my mental well being as a kid? Like, I was taken back there and I'm like, wow, this is, this is fun. And also I'm getting to like share these feelings and other people are relating. And I've always joked around. There is no easier gig than a treatment center gig because everyone is just so happy to hear live music. It's the easiest gigs I've ever played. Um, but like that was the first step and one aspect of me really learning to be okay uh, with, with what I have to live with. And, um, it's multifaceted. Like I have to take meds. I still see like a therapist. I'd go to support groups. I do advocacy stuff. Like I did a NAMI walk, which is a national association for mental illness. Um, I did that like last weekend. And so all these things, like there's, there was no silver bullet for me. 
Like there's no, and like, I'm not cured. Like I still go through hard times. I still have mental illness. That's something I'm going to have to wake up to every day. However, my manage, like the way that I manage that is so much healthier. Like I'm able to share those ideas and music is a big part of that. Like I know, I know the prop, like, I don't know the proper is the right word, but I, I know a healthy way of having a relationship with music now that allows me to express what I'm going through. Um, but still I'm able to kind of keep the perspective of like, okay, this, this is who I am. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not Chopin. <laughs> like I'm, <laughs> I'm me. And like, that's, that's fine. And ever since I, ever since I've been like in middle school, I've never, I've never really liked myself, but like, since I've gotten into recovery, it's, it's, it's something like I can say, I love myself, even though it's still kind of one of those feelings of like, ew, that's weird. Like it's still, it's still like, even when I just said it, I'm like, that's a weird thing to say, man. But like, I genuinely mean it. And like that came with a lot of work. Um, I think like without, uh, (laughs) without getting too into it, like my brain had carved very, very deep, like channels neural pathways of like negative thoughts negative Uh behaviors and it's taken me years and years of work and like changing my habits change you know exercise routines meditation all these things are helping me kind of like be able to lead a healthy and happy life and i'm happier than i've ever been now like it's it's amazing so um all this is just because like i reached out for help uh, so like, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Um, and like to anybody listening who's going through anything like that, like it does get better. And like, <laughs> if I can do it, you can do it. Type thing. <laughs> like, That's so true. And, um, and for folks who are, you know, going through some challenges right now, what, what is a very first step? Or what's what's a really good resource? I know you just mentioned the National Association for Mental Illness. So what's what's a first step someone could take that's listening? Well, I you know I didn't know about any of these like larger institutions or anything, and like I didn't look anything up on the internet. My first step was just seeking out someone who did, someone who would listen, and uh, those kind of led me to other sources. Um, so I, I would, the first step I would say, just be to re- reach out to anyone, mm-hmm. um, and just st- start talking to anyone. And, um, I mean, so, you know, I was very isolated, but still like I had certain people that I could talk to, uh, and just fortunately those people knew enough to like, you know, find resources for me. Um, but there are a lot of like resources online where you can get more information. So yeah, I said, uh, uh, NAMI, um, you know, mentalhealth.gov, the CDC, there's a lot of national or, or like uh, government run organizations that will also provide a great deal of information. Um, also like a lot of people, I mentioned Simone Biles earlier. There's a lot of famous people who are advocates for this sort of thing. And I know, uh, people anyway like someone who's listening might follow one of those people and like i've heard um like Patton oswalt is one of these people um 
who suffers from mental illness, the comedian Pat Oswalt. He's very funny. Uh, and his wife did as well. And so he, I've heard him talk about stories where people have reached out to him, like fans, and expressed you know, so, something, some difficulties that they're going through, and he actually gets back to them. Um, so there's plenty of... Uh, the resources are not in short supply. Um, there are so many options, and finding those isn't that difficult with like a quick search. Like if you probably if you type into Google, I am depressed. There'll probably be there'll probably be some sort of resource that you can find. But for me, I wasn't comfortable enough to do that. I had to talk to someone someone that I was comfortable with, and like I said, like they they were they really cared about me and so they did some of the work to help me find you know first it started with just therapy um and then the therapist kind of sent me somewhere else and i'm still with that therapist but uh so yeah like the mental and any anybody who uh you think might know something about mental illness is a good place to start i think yeah, that's great. Thank you, Victor. And um, Sarah, do you have any um, any resources or thoughts for folks who are listening? Yeah, um, a really great one. I actually worked as a certified crisis counselor for a long time with Crisis Text Line, which is a great resource if you feel a lot of anxiety about talking to somebody about what's going on because you don't have, you know, you can give a name or not. No one can see you. No one can hear your voice. It's completely anonymous, but you can text the word home, H-O-M-E to 741741 um, and reach crisis text line that way. And there's somebody on all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there are crisis counselors there. Um, and they also have access to a huge library of resources that they can connect you with. So you know, they can help you not just in a difficult moment where you just need to have a connection to someone to talk about what's going on, but they can also point you to other places um, that might be able to help with, you know, and they can get really specific too with the types of issues that are going on. Um, and I also want to give the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255. And that's also a 24 hour hotline that you can call at any time um, if you're having thoughts about self-harm or suicide. Thank you for sharing those, Sarah. And I will be sure to add that information to our show notes for anyone who's listening. Victor, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Everyone go read his recent article on our blog at metromusicmakers.com forward slash blog. I'll also post that link in our show notes. I'm so glad we took time to talk about this today. I appreciate both of you being on our show. This was a really important topic and um, I feel like we'll revisit it again in, in the future. There's a lot more to talk about in regards to mental health. So thanks so much. We appreciate everyone listening, and we'll see you next time.